Amen. Hey, before you sit down, why don't you take a couple minutes and greet one another and say hello. Woo! All right. Good to see all of you. You are such a friendly bunch. That's great. You may be seated. Hey, before we uh, get into the message this morning, just a couple of reminders. Uh, men who have signed up for the men's retreat coming up in just a couple weeks, don't forget to get your money for that into Woody as quickly as possible. He's got a huge group of men going out this summer. Also, something I want to let you know about, we had talked about this for a while and it's finally come together. And certainly we can update this as people come in and want to be added to this. But we've got our first Oasis Business Connection uh, sort of you know, uh, it's, it's a way for people within our church to know what other people do so that in case they would like to have that service, that they could actually have somebody from their church family. So I want to thank uh, Brenda Von Prisk and Rachel Johnson for putting this all together. It's out there on the information table, and I think they've got most everybody who dropped their business card in. If not, we apologize. We'll get that updated uh, if you would like to be a part of that, maybe this is the first Sunday you've heard about this, let us know and we will add you to our list. We can always make up uh, more copies. Then, another thing, don't forget next Sunday after our morning service is our potluck. Uh, we're looking forward to that. It's going to be the last one for a couple months. It's a way for us to just hang out together, get to know each other a little bit better, to just be together and eat, which we do so well together. Uh, so anyway, that's next Sunday. Just bring a dish to share. We meet after the service over in the cafeteria. What most people do, if you're new to us, is when they come to church, they just go on over to the cafeteria. It will be open in the morning. They drop their dish off, and then they come back over to the auditorium. A lot of people even just leave their cars parked over there because it's a lot more convenient than once we're done over there instead of walking all the way back across the church campus. And I just want to say this too, and first of all, and I'll certainly mention this when they come back from their honeymoon, but uh, it was just great to uh, be able to unite in marriage uh, last night, Elliot and Megan, but I wanted to just say something too about you all as a church. You don't realize just by being who you are, the positive impression that you make on people that aren't part of our church family. I got so many comments from people last night at the wedding about just how the people of our church, the Oasis, how friendly they are, how much they love each other, 
and how that is so evident. It, I was talking to some people there. It's like people know each other by name and they, they like hanging out. It's like, oh yeah, we're a family. This is what we are. This is, this is what we do. And you just don't realize just being who you guys are in each and every, you know, place we find ourselves in, just what a positive impression that makes on other people. So just thank you all for being that. You just don't know just, you know, what you do uh, and, and just the impression that you, that you make on others. Um, today, Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Um, these next couple of weeks, as we finish out chapter 3 of Romans, as we get into chapter 4, I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat this at all. Folks, we're going to be dealing with some technical stuff here, okay? And I realize that one of the things that I want to commend you for at all time is on Sundays and on Tuesday night, you all are engaged. I mean, you come to listen to the Word of God. I, I'm just mentioning this. These next couple weeks, you're going to have to even do a, a little bit, maybe even more of, of trying to hang in there, be engaged, Listen carefully, because God has got some amazing things to share with us, but it, it can tend to be on the sort of what I call technical side of things in the Bible. Not that it's not practical, but a lot of what we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks is profoundly important, but it's dealing with things that we might throw out as far as words, as, as far as Christianity goes, but do we really understand what they mean? Words like justification and sanctification and propitiation and redemption and all these words. Do we really understand what they mean? And my goal to these next couple of weeks isn't to speak from my head to your head. It's to speak from my heart to your heart. And I really believe with all my heart that these next couple of weeks, the passages we're going to be looking at should be what I call the Christian's sun within their solar system. In other words, these passages of Scripture and this truth that we're going to be talking about, this should be the sun of our life. This should be what we revolve around. This should be at the very center of, of you know, our life, our convictions and all of that, because I truly believe that if we can nail these truths down, that they will, they will be there through all the crises of life, through everything. They will be that anchor that so many are looking for. And I also believe because many, even Christians, really have never maybe even went through a verse-by-verse -verse exposition and explanation of a book like Romans that many Christians really don't understand uh, their salvation like we should. And that we really don't have an appreciation for our salvation and for what our Savior has done. And it's primarily because we don't understand really what the Bible teaches about our wonderful Savior and our salvation. So pray for me that in the next couple of weeks, I will do this well, I will do this clearly, I will do this accurately, and I will do this in a way that both honors God, but also inspires and motivates you in your walk with God. With that said, as I turned my Bible and I had it upside down, that's not a good way to start. Let's begin in Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. 
Basically what Paul wants to get into, built on what we talked about last week, that we've got to come to the reality that, that there was this fall of man. And that when sin entered into the world through the fall of man, our heart and our minds were greatly affected. And that part of what needs to happen is we need to allow God to renew our mind daily and to create in us a new heart. And to begin to see things from God's perspective rather than from our perspective. And that's really what the whole book of Romans has been about. Let's come into God's reality. Let's not try to either deny what reality really is or live in some fantasy make-believe world that that we have imagined uh, up in our own heads. Because when we deal with reality, what we will find is that God is bigger than any reality we're going to deal with anyway, because he's the greatest reality. And whatever our reality is, God will give us the tools, the resources, the grace, the strength to deal with it if we're just willing to face it. And so with that, Paul's going to say to us today, have we come really to the reality that we are a sinner And that we are guilty. We stand guilty before a holy, righteous God. This is what he picks up on in verse 19. Notice he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. This week he talks to us about being under the law. Last week he talked to us in verse 9 about being under sin. We have to admit that we are under the power, the influence, that we are in bondage. And under the control of sin in our lives apart from Christ. And so today he wants to talk to us about being under the law. So that he says, every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The word accountable means, it describes one who has lost all possibility of disproving a charge against him. In other words, Paul's saying, have we gotten to a point? Where instead of arguing with God, because I love the word he says, that the whole world may be silent. Because we know we've come over to a certain understanding or a certain way of thinking whenever we stop talking and we stop arguing and we remain silent and go, you're right, God. That's, That's who I am. That's where I am. That's sort of true even in our interpersonal relationships with each other. It's like when we finally hear the other person, instead of us trying to talk over them or think about our response before we, you know, they even finish, we are silent and we let it, that be known. Paul says, have we gotten to a place in our life where we realize that here's what God says, the holy, righteous God, we're guilty. We are sinners in need of salvation. In fact, a little later on in verse 23, he's going to tell everyone, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the reality. Now, we may deny that we're a sinner. We may deny that we are guilty before God. That that may, because again, these are not messages that you hear even in most churches today. Most churches aren't going to talk about sin. Most churches aren't going to talk about guilt and all of that before God. But the the, the problem with that is, and the tragedy about that is, is I never then really gain an appreciation for my salvation, for what God has done in my life and for the greatness of my Savior, if I never truly understand the depths that he brought me from, you see. 
And so that's what Paul's doing here. He's simply saying, have we gotten to a place in our life where our mouth is silent and where we will agree with God, God, you're right. I'm a sinner. I have fallen short of your glory. And, and I stand guilty before you. Now, in this passage today, too, here's what I want you to keep in the back of your mind through this whole entire passage. Paul is using a lot of legal terms from his day. So I want you to think about the setting of a courtroom with God as the presiding judge and you and I standing before him guilty. Again, we're going to get to the good news about all this in just a minute. But before we get to all that, Paul wants us to clearly be willing to accept the fact that I am a sinner standing guilty before God under his law, under the law's jurisdiction, which again, whether anybody wants to admit that they're under or not, Paul is teaching here the whole world is under God's jurisdiction of his law, whether they want to admit it or think it to be true or not. We all, the whole world, stands guilty before God. Then notice what he says in verse 20, though. No one is declared righteous, not guilty, acquitted in God's court before him by the works of the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul's saying, look, in this courtroom, no one is acquitted. No one is declared not guilty by God by doing good works, by being a good enough person, by trying to attain to what the law says is the perfect standard of God. Paul says, no one has ever been declared that before God. And yet, isn't it true that down through human history, and even today, if you were to ask many people on the street, why do you think one day you might get into heaven? Why do you think that God may you know, allow you into his heaven? Or why do you think you might have eternal life? What's the number one answer that's going to come out of most people's minds if they believe in a God and all of that anyway? Well, I hope that's, I hope that I've been a good enough person or I hope that I've done enough in my life for God to somehow let me in. That's the number one answer. And it's always been that. And yet the clear teaching of scripture for thousands of years has been no one ever works their way to heaven. No one is ever good enough because none of us can ever be good enough. None of us can ever be and fulfill all the law all the time. In fact, even a Christian who says, well, you know, I, I, uh, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, and now I'm going to try to live up to God's standard. What about what it was like before you became a Christian? Obviously, you didn't live up to the standard then, you see. And, and the reason this is so important, folks, and why we've got to nail this down is for this reason. And I'm going to hopefully bring out more of this later on. But here's the problem. We can even say as Christians, oh, I understand that I, I'm not saved by works. I understand that God's not ever going to let me into heaven because I feel I've been good enough. But here's what many Christians do who don't understand what Paul's going to talk about in just a moment from this passage. Somehow they think that, okay, I understand what Jesus did for me. 
And I understand God's standard and he never lowers his standard. But somehow I feel like even in my Christian life, that my work and my service and my ministry somehow has to make up in some way for, for, for something in order for, for God to be pleased with me, for God to accept me, for, for God to somehow be approved of me or me approved of God. And so we even as Christians somehow are motivated in, in much of our works and our ministry and service somehow to think that we do this because we got to make up for some mistake I've made in the past or, or I, I know what I'm struggling with now and somehow th- this is making up for that. Folks, this is not the teaching of Scripture, nor should it ever be part of our life. We serve, we minister, we, we work for God Not as a means of salvation, but as the results of our salvation. And we should always do it out of love and out of a want to. Never out of feeling like we're obliged to do it. Or that somehow God is going to be more happy with me if I do all these things. Again, the clear teaching of scripture is, no one has ever been declared righteous before God by doing the works of the law. Paul says, here's the purpose of the law. God gave the law so that mankind could have a clear, thorough acquaintance with his sin. In fact, the word law in the original Greek literally means straightness. So think of it as a way of, we we begin to understand how crooked we are when the law is placed up against our lives. We see how crooked we are. See, God gave the law Not so a human being could look at the law and go, okay, God, I'm going to try to live up to that. It was exactly the opposite intent. It was to show us that it's impossible for us to ever live up to this standard. There's no way we could ever be good enough, which then should hopefully drive us to the Savior, not to the law, you see. All the law was given by God was just to show us how desperately we need a savior, not somehow to think we could live up to that standard. And yet the very people of God, the Jews even, though they had all this law, they did not properly interpret it through the help of the spirit. And therefore their whole spiritual life was totally discombobulated because even in Jesus' day and throughout the whole Old Testament, many of them were trying to be good enough by doing the law. In fact, keep your finger there in Romans. This verses just popped into my head. Go back to the Gospel of John real quick. To some sobering words of Jesus. Not just to Jews, but to Gentiles as well, but specifically John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. These are great verses by Jesus. Really clear. John 5, 39 and 40. Jesus says, you study the scriptures thoroughly. So in other words, hey, you know your Old Testament, basically. Because you think in them you possess eternal life. You think that the more knowledge you have and then trying to live up to all that, that somehow that's how you and I possess eternal life. Notice what he goes on to say. It is these same scriptures that testify about me, but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. See, life, eternal life is not found in the law. 
Eternal life is found in one place and in one person. It is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The law was given to us to show us how much we need Christ, not not somehow to think we can live up to this standard. We never can. We never can. In fact, back to the book of Romans. Notice in chapter 3, verse 31, the very last verse of this chapter, Paul then says, do we then nullify the law through faith? He says, absolutely not. It would be like us saying in our day and age, a thousand times no, Paul says. He says, instead, we uphold the law. The word means we see more clearly the real purpose of the law. God gave us his standard to show us, I can't live up to that. Every time I put the straight edge of the law up against my life, I see how crooked I am. And that should drive me not to the law to try to live up to the law. It should drive me to the only one that can redeem me from that. Jesus Christ. See? And that's what Jesus said. You think in these scriptures you study so thoroughly, you have eternal life in them. But they're what testify of me. They point to me. Come to me. I'm the only one that can give you life. Back then, notice what Paul goes on to say, though, in Romans now 3.21. Here's where the dramatic sort of contrast comes in, where Paul's going to lay out something that just should lay us all just to our knees as to the wonder of what God has done and is willing to do for us who put our personal faith and trust in Jesus. He says, but now, apart from the law, distinctly separate from the law, the righteousness of God, the standard which God requires, which is attested by the law and the prophets. In other words, Paul's saying, look, the entire Old Testament talked about being right with God apart from the law, You guys just missed it. He says, this has been disclosed, verse 22, namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, what Jesus did for all who believe, believe in Jesus, not believe in themselves to be able to live up to the law, but believe in Jesus. Paul's saying, that's how we can be made right before God. That's how we can do it. Now, this word believe in verse 22 is a very important word. Because it's a word that means to rest or rely fully on. So in other words, he's saying, but you've got to believe. You've got to believe in a way that this reliance revolutionizes your life. Are you resting totally and relying totally on Jesus Christ to be right with God? Or are you relying on Jesus plus what you can do to sort of make up the difference? See? And the reason why this is important is let's not forget what the Word of God teaches. Even by using the word believe. In James chapter 2, verse 19, James says, be careful about this belief thing. Make sure it's true belief, full belief, because he says the demons believe and tremble. They believe in Jesus Christ. They believe in God, but they're demons because they never 
rested and relied on God. They're relying on themselves. So in other words, they have a head knowledge about God that's even greater than our understanding of God at this point before we get to heaven. But that belief has never revolutionized their life. That that belief has never caused them to surrender to God's way. They're still trying to do things their way. They're not fully relying and resting in Jesus Christ. They're resting in themselves. So when Paul says, this being made right with God comes about through the faithfulness of what Jesus did, being obedient to the death of the cross, for those who believe, let's make sure that our belief isn't like the demons believe. Let's make sure It's a belief that truly is fully relying and resting in God. Not in anything that we can bring to the table, if you will. For it goes on to say there is no distinction. It literally means there's no two ways to be made right with God. There's only one way to be made right with God and to stand before the judge of the universe and be declared not guilty or acquitted. There's only one way. It's it's consistent through scripture. Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Peter said in the book of Acts, there is no other name given among men under heaven whereby men must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. Over and over again, Old Testament, New Testament. That's what the Old Testament was all about, as we're going to learn, that God did that whole sacrificial system and all of those rituals, if you will, for the Jewish people, not for them to trust in them to be made right with God, but to point them to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only one that could take away sin. The writer of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. It could never deal with sin in its fullness, in its totality. Only what Jesus Christ could do, could do that. Are we resting in what he's done? Not in anything of what we have done. So notice verse 23, all have sinned, all have acted contrary to the will of God and fallen short of the glory of God, failed to reach the intended goal for our life. Every human being who's ever lived. But now, notice what he says in verse 24. But they, they who believe that he talks about in verse 22, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Folks, if there's one verse that every Christian should memorize, every Christian should grasp the meaning of, every Christian should have, again, as the very son of your universe, it should be Romans 3.24. Because here's what Paul's saying. First of all, he says... We are justified. Again, that means that before the judge of the universe in whom we stand guilty, he will say to us, no longer, you're not guilty. He will acquit us. And here's what it is. It is a, please listen, this is important. To be justified before God, again, is a legal term. It is a term in the Greek language that means a one-time, once-and-for-all declarative act of God. Period. 
In other words, you and I don't get justified by God over and over again. We are justified by God once in our life when you and I believe in what Jesus Christ did. When we trust fully in Jesus and place our personal faith fully in Him, then the judge says, not guilty. The judge says, you're acquitted of all charges. The judge says, once and once and for all, you are declared righteous before me. Because here's the fantastic thing. It doesn't mean we're made righteous. That's not what the word justified means. See, that's where many Christians get... No, it's a declarative act. God just declares we are righteous before Him. How can God do that? Well, because the Bible teaches, as we're going to learn next week, that God not only takes away our sin and forgives us of all of our sin when we accept Jesus, but then He gives to us a righteousness that is not ours. And that's how He can declare us righteous before Him. Because when you and I as Christians stand before the judge of the entire universe, we are not ever standing in our own righteousness. We are standing in the perfect sinless righteousness of Jesus. We are in Him, folks. That's how we're declared righteous before Him. And folks, that never changes positionally. Now, yeah, practically speaking, we got to work that out. Practically speaking, our Christian life, our whole Christian life, is God trying to work in our life to bring out who we are positionally in a more practical level. But folks, God does that once in our life. Once, once and for all, He declares you and I righteous before Him because we are willing to come before Him, not in our self-righteousness, which can never, ever measure up to the righteousness of God. We come standing before Him in the righteousness of Jesus Christ Period. That's what justification is. Then notice he says, oh, and by the way, this is given to us freely by his grace. It is a gift that is totally undeserved. We don't earn it. We can't earn it. We can't ever do enough for God to say, oh, Jeff, you've been such a good person. I, will, I have to oblige to give you my salvation. No, no. It's free, folks. It's a gift from God. That's why Paul later on in the book of Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Folks, it's free. And, and it's, we, we do nothing to deserve it. That's what makes our salvation just so awesome. See, as much as God hates sin, God loves sinners more. And that kind of love is what motivated the judge of the universe. Think of this. To lay aside his judicial gavel. To lay aside his judicial robes. And to walk out of that courtroom and to go to a cross and to die for those of us who are guilty. That's the kind of judge God is. If we're willing to come to him by faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know a judge that would do that? If, if there was somebody that stood before a judge today and, were, and they were guilty. 
Do you know anyone, any human being that would lay aside the gavel, take off the robe and say, I will take your punishment even though you're guilty. That's what Jesus did for us. He was our substitute. He took our punishment that we deserved as sinners standing before God guilty. And he took that on himself so that we never had to. That's what salvation is all about. That's why Christians, if we truly understood what our salvation is and what we have through Christ and what Jesus did for us, how could we not be motivated to worship him and serve him every day? Not because we feel we have to. Not because we're obliged to somehow think that, God, you're going to love me more or approve of me more by doing these things. It's simply because we want to. That's what it's all about. That's what Paul's trying to get us to see. That's the reality of life with God. Notice he goes on to say we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What's the word redemption means? It means deliverance or release through the payment of a price that is too high for us to ever pay. In other words, what Jesus did, think of the slave market. Jesus came in to those of us who were in bondage under the power and the control of sin and Satan in our flesh. And Jesus basically set us free and released us through paying a price that none of us could have ever paid, no matter how good we tried to be. That's what redemption is. That's why the song we sang this morning, one of them, they were all... All fit the message, but the one about Jesus paid it all. Folks, that's what Romans is saying. We don't have to pay anything because Jesus paid it all. We could have never paid it anyway. It's a price too high for us. See, the only price that God could accept because he's a righteous, holy God for our salvation and to still be a righteous, holy God, just, was a perfect sacrifice. That's why Jesus Christ is the only one that could pay that. It doesn't matter how good we try to be. It doesn't matter how many good works we try to do. We're never going to measure up to that price. We can never bring before God that perfection that only Jesus Christ, the lamb without spot and blemish, could bring. And he was willing to do it. Jesus Christ was willing to lay aside the gavel, lay aside the judicial robe, and go out on that cross and said. I'll pay the price for you, Jeff. I'll take, I'll be your substitute. This is what you deserve, but I'll take it on myself. That's what Jesus did for all of us who believe in him. Notice, this redemption is in Christ Jesus. It's through him. He's the instrument. He's the channel. It can't come any other way. No matter what someone does in their religion, no matter what someone does in their, in their own personal life, the only way to be declared right before God is to come His way, and His way alone is Jesus Christ. That's it. There is no other way. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 25. God publicly displayed Him at His violent death. He, he placed him in full view as the mercy seat 
accessible through faith. Some of your Bible translations may use this word propitiation there. It's literally in the Greek, the word halasteron. It's the word that was used for the mercy seat that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Let me give you that picture so that you and I can truly begin to grasp what Paul's talking about here and why Paul equates Jesus Christ with the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember how the Ark of the Covenant looked and how it was described in the Old Testament, it had these two cherubim that were hiding themselves with their wings as, as they were there at the presence of God. And so the top of the Ark of the Covenant was symbolic of the presence of a holy, righteous God. As you came down the Ark of the Covenant from those angels, you came to the mercy seat. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Then obviously under the mercy seat in the box itself contained, in a sense, the evidence of mankind's rebellion against God. There were three things in the Ark of the Covenant contained inside the box. There were the tables of the law, which obviously is evidence that we break the law, God. You're right. We stand guilty before you. But there were two other things in that box. There was the pot of manna that reminded the people too. And and when God graciously gave you that manna to sustain you and keep you alive, all you did was complain and gripe. There's another check. You, you didn't measure up. And then he used Aaron's rod that literally budded. Why did he put that in there? Because God had appointed Moses and Aaron and others as his leaders. And yet the people were continually rebelling instead of following God's appointed leadership. All of those things contained in that ark was basically God's evidence in his court that man stands guilty before him. And yet above that was this mercy seat. And on this mercy seat, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, what the Jews call Yom Kippur, the high priest would come with the blood and would literally sprinkle that blood of that animal on that mercy seat. And it was a reminder that the only way there could be a bridge between the guiltiness of man and the sinfulness of man and this holy God that the angels oversaw was through blood, was through one giving up its life, was through a sacrifice, a substitute. And that's what the mercy seat was all about. And Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, is our mercy seat. He's the mediator, as Paul says, between God and men. He's the only mediator between God and man. He's the only bridge. He's the only one that can bring sinful man into a right relationship with a holy God. Ever since man has been on the earth, the question man has asked himself is, how can I be right with God? It's a question that went all the way back into the book of Job, the first book really in the Bible, as far as chronologically. Job says, how can a man be right before God? God told us how. Through the Messiah. The whole Old Testament pointed to the Messiah coming. He would be the way to be made right with God. And now in the New Testament, we look back to what Jesus did. And our personal trust and faith. That's how we're made right with God. Not by being good enough. Not by doing enough good works. We are freed from that, my friends. We've been redeemed. 
We've been released from that bondage of trying to be good enough or religious enough or right enough all the time. That's all been done away with through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So then he goes on to say, giving us a little background here. He says, God publicly displayed Jesus at his death as the mercy seat accessible again through what? Through faith. Through personal trust in Jesus to save. Now he did this, Paul said, to demonstrate, to make known his righteousness. Because God never ceased being righteous, even though he's going to go on to say, in his forbearance, through all the Old Testament, he passed over the sins previously committed. That doesn't mean God left all the Old Testament saints off the hook. What it means is God temporarily suspended dealing with, in a full and final way, sin because the Messiah hadn't come yet. So, obviously, they're still responsible for their sins. But it's a way of Paul of saying that the whole thing in God's program revolved around Jesus the Messiah. If you lived before the Messiah, then it was going to be wrapped up in the Messiah. None of those sacrifices those Jews did throughout the Old Testament ever took away their sin. They were looking forward to what Jesus was going to do when he came. And now that you and I live past the time of Jesus coming, we look back to that as well. Notice he says in verse 26, this was also to demonstrate his righteousness, his perfect moral character in the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. See, God is the only one that can be both. The question is, how can a holy, righteous, just God deal with sin? He can't just pardon it. You know, like some people teach universal salvation. God just lets everybody in to heaven regardless. Well, then he wouldn't be just. See, somebody has to be punished for sin. That there has to be someone that pays a price for sin or else God is no longer righteous. See, that's what human beings and even many Christians today, they don't understand their salvation because they don't understand what brought it all about. God had to do something. Somebody had to take the penalty for this or else he ceased to be a righteous, just, holy God. So, by Jesus Christ being willing to come to be that And to pay that penalty, God can stay just. God can stay righteous. God can stay holy. But then notice also, he can also be the justifier. He can also be the only one who is able to declare a human being right before him. He can be both. And neither one is mutually exclusive to the other. It's a perfect balance of God maintaining his righteousness... Because somebody paid the penalty for sin and yet still declaring human beings righteous who don't deserve it out of his love and based on what Jesus did. So notice then in verse 27, he says, where then for the human being is boasting? Literally, where is self-congratulation? Can we go around patting ourselves on the back? How wonderful we are because we're right with God? No. It's all of God. It has none, nothing to do with us. The only thing we do is accept what Jesus did by faith. 
That's why Jesus even said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. The word poor there means beggar. The the lowest of society as far as nothing in their hand. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for they will inherit the kingdom of God. He's describing someone that doesn't come to God saying, well, God, I'm going to give you what I have, and then you just make up the difference. I think that's the way a lot of Christians even view their salvation. God, I'm trying to live up to your standard so that you can add what I do to what Jesus did, and somehow that'll be enough. No. See, when we come to God, and if we truly understand salvation and how it works, we bring nothing to God. We just bring our broken, sinful, guilty selves and say, God, save me. And we literally throw ourselves on the mercy seat and let the blood of Jesus redeem us. That's why Peter said, we're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from our vain manner of life. We are redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot and blemish. So he says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. It's eliminated. By what principle, by what method of works do we work for our salvation or being declared right before God? He says, no, by the principle of faith. Again, personal trust in Jesus to save. For we consider that a person is declared righteous by faith apart from the works of the law. This is the message. That Paul wants to lay out for us. This is the reality. Yes, folks. The reality is we stand guilty before God as human beings. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Then how in the world can me and all of my sinfulness, how can I be made right before God? By simply trusting in Jesus Christ to save me. And when I do that, God justifies me. He declares me right once and for all before Him because I'm not standing in my own righteousness. I'm standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Have you been justified today? Do you know down deep in your heart you've been declared right before God and that that's settled And if so, in your Christian life, then where are your works and service and ministry come into play? Are you still, even though you're saved and your sins are forgiven and you're on your way to heaven, are you still somehow by the way you're living your Christian life and how you approach your Christian life, are you still trying to make up with God for something in your past? Even though God said... You're right before me. Are you trying to do enough good things for somehow for God to like you more or be more approved of you and accepting of you? See, if that's the case, folks, then you've missed what God's salvation is all about. Because in God's salvation of us, we're released from all that. Any service, any ministry, any work we do is totally because we want to. Not because we're obligated or we have to. Because no matter how much work or service or ministry we do, it will never be enough. Never. You will live a frustrated, exhausting Christian life 
trying to always either make up for something you've done or measure up if that's how you view your salvation. God wants you and I to be at rest in our salvation. Which is why Jesus could say to those who truly follow Him and believe in Him, Come to Me, all ye who are labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your soul. Because you won't have to live one more day, one more minute, trying to be good enough and to measure up to Me. This is a gift that is undeserved that I freely give you. Just accept it. Accept it and then live in it. And be confident in it. And let this truth be the sun in your solar system that your life revolves around every day that you live. Have you been made right with God? Or are you still trying to be made right by what you do? Release that today once and for all. Come to Jesus today. Come to Jesus and stand in His righteousness. That's the only way we can stand before God. Let's pray. God, may we never forget that though You are a righteous, just, and holy God, And though you hate sin and what sin does in our lives, you love the sinner even more. And that's why in this great picture that Paul is painting for us here at the end of Romans chapter 3, he paints a great and moving picture of the judge of the universe being willing to lay down the gavel and lay down his robe And go out to that cross and take my penalty and my punishment upon himself. God, what a Savior. What a salvation we have. God, I pray today that as you seek our hearts, as you come after us and seek us to come to Jesus and rest in Jesus, and even as Christians to learn to rest in Jesus, God, would we, would we give up from running and hiding from you? And would we just allow you to wrap your arms of love around us and begin to love on us like you want to? Help us to stop struggling against you and just to rest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.